0: welcome back to real voices of the game productions I'm Dave d'Agostino I'm joined here by my two co-hosts Mark Wiley and will George this is a day at the yard common sense pitching with Wiley and will this is episode 121 now on our podcast network and we just reached the 12,000 subscriber mark this morning so we appreciate our listeners and their support remember to download download listen like subscribe so we get credit for it uh, you can follow us on Apple or on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And of course, you can get the downloads on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. We've got a great show for you today. Uh, Mark and Will always bring on great guests and, and they always bring out the best in those guests. And uh, But before we, we start with Mark's usual introduction, Will, I want to go to you with uh, this special camp that you had set up for for kids in your area to help them grow and develop in sort of a preseason mode with, with two great guys we've had on the show, Brandon Duckworth and Jesse Levis.
1: Yeah, we um, were able to sell the camp out. We're doing uh, two three-hour sessions with 20 pitchers and catchers total in each camp. And uh, it's kind of a, just a preseason. Here's some things for you to take that are going to make you uh, foundationally better uh, as a pitcher, as a catcher, and as a hitter. And uh, we're excited. Uh, Kevin... Pumped us up pretty good on ball nine and what we've had from here, and uh, also Brandon and I are going to be on Saturday morning uh, with Ed Randall and Kevin Kennedy on XM Radio to talk a little bit about how important these camps are for kids.
0: Nice, you give give uh, give the podcast a little name drop there.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure.
0: I'm happy for it. The kids are going to be, have a great camp, and they're lucky to have you guys doing that for him. There's no value you can put on the time you're spending with him. And uh, Mark, to you now, we've got a great guest today. I know you're prepared with a with a bio for him. And, and why don't you introduce our guest today?
2: Well, we're really excited to have uh, Ken Kravick, who's been, was a major league player, uh, major league scout, minor league uh, pitching coach. Uh, he's had a vast career. His last over 30 years has been scouting. Um you know, Ken's got kind of an interesting uh, path. He was a uh, he was at high school, uh, Mid Park High School in Middleburg Heights, Ohio. Got drafted out of high school by the Cleveland Indians, but you know, back then they weren't required to even call you. So they he got drafted. And they never called him back about about signing, and he wanted to sign, which is kind of funny because he went to because of that he had a choice of only really going to Ashley University, but he had an unbelievable college career at Ashland and Division II. He leads all Division II pitchers in the history of, of baseball there with 15 shutouts. Uh, he's fourth all time uh <clears throat> two in career strikeouts. Um he's uh he led the 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 nation in division two in strikeouts, uh strikeouts per inning in the era in 1971 uh 70 to 71 he uh, led division 2 in strikeout ratio both years um, he ended up getting drafted by the Chicago White Sox in the 3rd round of the draft in 1973 75 his 3rd year he was in double a dominating and they called him up to the big leagues so it didn't take it didn't take Ken very long to get to the big leagues um, in his career, uh, he pitched 160 games, 128 starts, 859 innings, only 814 hits, threw six shutouts and 24 complete games. Um, in 1975 is when he debuted against Kansas City. Um, from, from that point, from 75 to 80, he was, he was with the Major League Club with the White Sox uh, seventy seven to seventy nine he led the white sox in strikeouts seventy eight and seventy nine hit batters so he kept them loose and in seventy nine he led the chicago white sox in wins with fifteen in eighty one he was already tra- he got he got traded to to uh to chicago cubs and uh he was second in the national league in wins in eighty one in the short season um and in 81, 82, uh, those were the two years he was with the Cubs. He transitioned in 1986 to pitching coach uh, with the Kansas City Royals in the minor league. He coached in rookie league, A league, double A. Um, he became the advanced scout for the, for the Kansas City Royals in 1989. He, uh, uh the, uh, 1990, the, uh, was let me see what I got here. I think I messed that up anyway in ninety one he went to uh to the marlins uh their first it was the year before they started up and and he was in charge of trying to find players to draft to to build a team in ninety two to ninety six he was their advanced scout with the Marlins then he went to the to the cubs ninety seven to two thousand fifteen as a special assistant to the general manager. And now since 2016, he's been with Tampa Bay Rays as a pro scout. So you can see with a lot of years of experience seeing a lot of players, uh, we're
3: really glad to have you on the show. Hey hey you all thank yeah, Thanks for having me. You know, look forward to uh our talk and um and give you a little history. I mean it's been it's hard to believe that uh I'm in the position I am now. It's gone so fast and have spent so many years in the game. I've been fortunate and been able to meet and work with some great people, as you all know. And, um, like I said, I just, I just feel honored that, uh, I've, I've been able to hang on in the game as long as I have. You know, I'm going
2: to start with a question. I know, uh, Will's got a bridge off of this. You know, my question was that a number of, of, uh, Big part of today's game is numbers, analytics. You know what makes sense
3: to you, and what do you think is important? Well, um, you know, really, the way the game's transitioning, you know, you really have to kind of, you know, you got to try to absorb everything that's out there, and you're not going to agree with everything. But I think you know the analytics does play a part. You know, we back, you know, I hate to say that hate the way I'm going to say it, but back in the day. You know, instead of exit velocity, we might have said light tower power or something. But um, it all came into play to understand a, a player's ability. But, um, you, you know, the, the, the one thing, the way the game keeps changing. I mean, you can look in the 90s and the way the Yankees and the Red Sox were when they were very competitive and the Yankees were in, the, it seems like they were in the World Series every year. They had a veteran team that, that worked to count went into deep counts and and waited for their pitch or took the walk, where now it's in a short time, at least it feels like it, we've transitioned into um, big swings, uppercuts, and power. So, you know, I don't particularly agree with that because I, as many games as I still watch, I think there's opportunities to move runners over or to drive runners in by going with the pitch, and um, you know, playing more of the game of baseball and taking what they give you, but it gets frustrating. So many times you you just don't see it. You'll you'll see a left-handed hitter with a shortstop playing more up or a third baseman playing more up the middle, and um, he'll still pull the ball right into this into the shift and just doesn't get the runs in or the runs over. And I know that's changing this year, but. Um, you know, hopefully, you know it it opens up the game a little bit.
1: Yeah,
2: it's have you, certainly. Have been, you got a bridge off that.
1: Yeah, you know it's certainly frustrating to watch. You know the that the over over reliance and importance just put on numbers and and uh, scientific data, uh, spin rate, high velocity. Um, you know, we sit and we watch pitchers that don't throw strikes, but. You know, I, uh, you and I had a conversation and, you know, we, we've always stayed in touch and enjoy our friendship. And you were telling me that you were thinking of retiring and uh, your general manager, you know, kind of said, hey, you know, we'd like to keep you on board. Maybe you could tell, tell our audience, you know, what, what he needs you for still and uh, how important this is, too.
3: Yeah. Um, actually there was, um, it was Kevin Ibach, our pro director, who, um, who's great, does a great job with what he does. And, and, um, I had, you know, everybody always said that, you know, when it's time to retire, you'll know. And I, that's what happened to me, uh, in uh, two years ago, I was, I was busy for about four months doing a lot of traveling, and all, I, I just came home right before the trade deadline, and I just said to myself, I can't do this anymore, and uh, so I thought about it. I didn't want to overreact, and a couple of weeks later, I called Kevin. I said, Kevin, I said, just to give you a little heads up and give you time, but I'm, I I think I'm going to retire this year, and it gives you a few months, you know, if you want to fill my spot, or it gives you a chance to find somebody else, and and, uh, you know, he came back and said, uh, you know, have you ever thought about maybe doing a little part-time. Well, he kind of caught me off guard, to be you know, I'll be honest with you, because at 70 years old, if you're calling somebody, especially in this game anymore, to retire, it's pretty much, hey, thanks for everything, see you later. Sure. Yeah. And um, But he was great, and I said, well, I hadn't thought about it. So a couple weeks later, I, I gave him a call and just thought how, how it would work for myself. And, and to the point, I, I still wanted to enjoy it. But the biggest thing is I didn't want to travel. I, I wanted to stay out of the airports and hotels. And he he was great. I just, I came up with some ideas and he was, he was all in and it was fantastic. And I love my job. I love working for the Tampa Bay Rays. And, and really the biggest issue for me at the time was just, was just the travel. And that was the distraction. I just, I just had to get that behind me. Right.
1: Right. And, you know, and in, in the fact that they recognized your experience and contacts how valuable that is in putting together a chemistry of a team that ends up being a winning team every year, because, you know, you guys have a good clubhouse. You can see that the way your, your, your major league club plays the game.
3: Well, well I, that was the, I mean, that was one of the things that he did bring up is, you know, the years I've, I'm in the game and the context I have and the old, they call it the Rolodex, you know, my Rolodex is pretty good. And, and really, just as, as you both know, you know, you're in the game so long. And and if we were trying to make a trade or trying to sign a release player or a free agent, you know, I, I would get a call most of the time and try to find out the makeup of this player. And and I was able to, I mean, I was able to call up people that had experience. I mean, I I've called you both, as you well know, asking about players. And trying to get makeup of players, I might have been had run through Colorado, and um, so that I mean that it seems now at least it's such a it's much more it's a much bigger part of the game now. Was twenty years ago, you know, maybe they were asking somewhere else, but I just don't remember being so um, so deep into makeup.
0: Ken, how did your role change? What do you, what do you what's your current role as you designed it?
3: Well um I'm obviously like I said I'm still involved with the makeup of you know all players you know uh as far as acquisition when I when I, well, I shouldn't say all players but players that he thinks that I might have crossed paths with and uh but now um I wanted to stay close to home so I'm, I'm basically with the extent of my coverage is maybe going from Tampa Bay to Fort Myers and I've requested um more uh uh Gulf Coast League teams—I can't think of the name of the league now—but the rookie league teams, and just because they play day games, they start at noon. Um, Sunday or Saturdays are ten o'clock games. Wednesdays and Sundays are off. I mean, I I like just having a normal working day and working hours. But I still cover a couple Florida State League teams. You know, still have a few night games I have to go to, but I really like the day games, and I'll—I'll trade off the Florida Heat, you know, to be home at. You know, four thirty, five o'clock, and and have a you know, feel like I'm having a normal lifestyle because for the most part, I play a little golf, but I'm not enough to where you know I'm keeping myself so busy during the day that I don't have things I'd like to do. And and like I said, with my new job, I, I really have a renewed en- energy. Really like what I'm doing, and it, it keeps me busy and keeps my toe in the water, and uh, which I which I like.
0: I'm sure you're That's super valuable. What well, you play a little golf yesterday. How'd you do?
3: <laughs> um, you want to really know how I did? Or I, I had that big you can pencil. Lie. With,
0: we have no way of knowing.
3: I had that big pencil with the eraser. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I struggled on the front and played pretty good on the back. And we have a good group of guys. Um, they had played for years, but uh, um, but you know, obviously, still working for full time. I couldn't fit into their their uh, their game. And they play every Monday and Friday. They play every Monday and Friday at a course up here. Uh, down here in Sarasota called Legacy and play every afternoon and they reserve three tee times. And we usually have anywhere from eight or 10 to 12 uh, players. And there's some ex-players that are in that group, um, uh, Wayne Garrett, uh, Neil uh, Neil Allen, uh, you know, myself. You know, unfortunately, Kenny Fraling was part of that group and he had just passed away. So, but it it's a good group, and and we make some road trips to other courses, and uh, you know it's, it's it's fun. It's a good time. It's awesome. Well, the one good thing when
2: you run up to Tampa to see a game, you don't have to worry about a rainout. No, that's what sorry, I always sorry. liked about that's what I always liked about scouting there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's all. Well, good, we, no doubt. You know, um, you know, we talked about you attended a you know a small. Uh, a division two school, um, you know, and, and you were drafted out of there. You were a big success. You were a big league player. You've been in the game for over 40 years. Um, you know, a lot of people, they, they seem to put down like division two, division three, NAIA, you know, as long as you keep pitching, there's always a chance. Good things happen. What do you, how do you feel, you know, about players in similar situations, what kind of advice do you have for them?
3: Well, no, it's everything you said is true. I mean, you know, just to backtrack a little bit, you know, I was recruited by bigger schools. Like at the time, I think I mentioned to you, um, Ohio University and Miami of Ohio had really strong programs at the time. And they, they were both recruiting me and I had scholarships there, but like, like you had mentioned, I, I I wanted to sign at the time for whatever reason, I just, I I didn't, I just wanted to play pro ball. You know, I loved the game and loved playing. And, and, you know, as it turned out, it, it was a much better decision that I did go to college, but, um, but because I was kind of dragging my feet waiting for the Indians to get back to me, you know, the scholarships at Miami, Ohio university were pulled off the table. So now all of a sudden it's, it's July. And, um, now I figure, well, geez, I need to go to school. And uh, Ashland had had sent me a letter, but I really didn't pay much attention to it. And, I, and it was probably could have been six months later. I responded to it. They got right back to me. I went down to the campus. They offered me a little money, and and I said, okay, fine. It was a nice campus, and that's how I ended up going to Ashland. I mean, it wasn't. It all probably happened within a week. And um, you know, being being a D two school, I you know I was looking at their schedule and. They still played uh, some D1 schools. I mean, at the time, like Akron, uh, Youngstown State, Ohio University, which, like I said, had a strong program. I mean, Mike Schmidt was there, Steve Swisher, few, Jax Robertson, a few, few players that came out of there. And then, um, you know, we, we'd make our southern trips and we played the University of Jacksonville uh, on our southern trip. And, at, and one year at the time we played, and they were in the top 25 in the country. But but I think what you said is is right. I mean, what even if it's in you know in the minor leagues where you're you're looking still looking to ch- try to get a chance at the big leagues. And as long as you have a uniform on and you keep playing, you always have a chance. And I think that's what you have to do, no matter what level you're at. Because even at even at one time, um, you know, I kind of forgot about this. My my college my high school basketball coach went to Marietta, Ohio, and they had a they have a re- I think it's D3. a real strong D three program. program. You know, like uh, Jim Tracy was there, and a few, a few other big. Rusty Coons. Yeah, yeah, right?
1: all those guys. Yeah, you know,
3: and and it's well, it's a funny story now, but it wasn't at the time. And I I wanted to play at one time. Thought I wanted to play basketball and baseball. And I wasn't going to play at Ohio University or Miami, and I wasn't going to play at Ashland because um, Bill Musselman was there, and he had a real strong program. For the most part, we're finishing in the top five every year in the country, and uh, so we go down and our um, well, like I said, our, our, our high school coach, he was in their Hall of Fame, and I think he, you know, he was older than me, and he played all three sports. So he took a group of us down there. And uh, I thought that, well, this is a good chance for me to play basketball. So we we had some pickup games down there in front of the coach, basketball coach, two days. And and he offered me uh, that I could I could play there, you know, in which I was excited because the baseball part to me was a no brainer. But I hadn't met with the baseball coach yet. And uh, so anyways, during the course of that, that visit, I met with him. And. I was, a, you know, I was a pretty good high school pitcher, and, it, and he had like no interest in me. It was like I thought at first when he told me, I I thought it was a joke, you know, and and you know, But at seventeen, it's it's like what really? He goes, no, he goes. We're pretty set. whatever, you know, pitching and and we feel like we got the better players out of the Cleveland area. He kind of dropped that on me, and uh, so it, it kind of you know obviously hurt my ego a little bit, and uh, so moving on, uh, trying to shorten up the story a little bit. When I got to Ashland and, and uh, Luke, uh, George Donjes and Lou Markle ended up being the coach the last couple of years. I requested every year for us to schedule Marietta. And we had another pretty good pitcher. Randy Fairball, who got the triple A. Yeah. Randy's one of a good them. friend of mine. Okay. Yeah. He was part of the staff and, and, and Lou, try to schedule Marietta. I said, we'd come down there, you know, come to Ashland We meet you at a neutral site. But every year they wouldn't, they wouldn't play us. So um, anyway. You wanted to throw a big strikeout number on him, didn't you? Well, you know, hopefully, you know, you never know. Marietta had a good program, but it was just, you know, it was kind of, I don't know, not a wake up call, but it was kind of interesting that he didn't have any interest for me to come down there at all and play baseball.
2: Yeah, you know, People make mistakes all the time, don't they? They think they've got it or they didn't send anybody to see you, so they kind of brush it off. Right, right. Uh, you know, you, you played in, in the big leagues with some really good pitchers, you know, uh, Jim Cott, who we're we're hoping to get on the show, and he's going to have his own podcast, and some of the other guys. What, what are some of your mentors and players that had an impact on you all the way through to scouting?
3: Well, you know, you brought up Jim Cotton, Wilbur Wood, and, you know, I mean, Wilbur Wood was on that team, and Stan Bonson, when I got called up in 75, and and really that, they helped a lot, because, you know, I I wasn't pitching much. I was up there for two months and pitched four innings, and that's kind of the way it was back then. you know, Chuck Tanner was the manager. They were fighting for uh, a, a, what was a division or league title at the time with Oakland. And, you know, they had a pretty good team and a veteran team, and you just, you know, you really kind of kept your mouth shut, but you watched how guys handled themselves when they were pitching good or when they were pitching bad or if somebody made a good play and, and they had to go up to him and say, hey, nice play. You know, thanks for bailing me out. And that helped a lot. And But it tra- with the White Sox, it transitioned fairly fast. We became very young in a hurry. Um, you know, Bill Vett bought the club. And we kind of transitioned all all the veteran players we had, like Carlos May and Bucky Dent and and Kenny Henderson and 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 the pitching staff that we had. You know, Gossage and Forster in the bullpen, they all moved on within a couple of years. So really, it was you know, we were a bunch of young guys trying to learn from each other. And it you know really would have helped if we would have had more veterans on the staff. Well, Steve Stone was with us for a little while before he we went to Baltimore, but, you know, it was, a lot of it was um, kind of learn as you go because of our younger years. But, you know, there are there times where you try to, you know, whether it was uh, Nolan Ryan or Guidry or who, Jim Palmer, that you try to pay attention and see how they went about their business.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, it's a growing thing when you're lucky enough to spend as many years in the game as you have you know, lots of people have an impact. Sometimes little comments people make can impact your your view
3: of things. Yeah, for, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't a big strike thrower. Uh, I mean, it um, seemed like I was, I was either striking a guy out or I was walking him, you know, not to that extent. But and uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting because Bill Veck, one day he made a comment to me and, um, which really, you know, he, he, he said, you know, why don't you just go out there and just throw that first pitch right down the middle and just see how far the hitter can hit it. You know, try to, try to work ahead of these hitters. And he, he was right. You know, it was, just, it got me to trying to focus more and, and, um, maybe, maybe I was trying to strike everybody out. I don't know, but, but I can't, can't really remember, but it was, it was, it was, it was a good, good piece of advice just to make me more aggressive in, in the strike zone. I mean, my stuff was good enough to make it work. Hey, you talk about Bill Vack. Was
2: he part of the guys that did the 1979 anti-disco
3: night story? Uh, yeah, he was, well, he, he was the owner, but I think Mike Vack was more involved with that from the story I was told. And, you know, Steve Dahl, who set the whole thing up, he was the probably one of the first shock jocks in the country, and he was on a rock and roll station in Chicago, and probably I think he was the most popular DJ in Chicago, and and they came up with this idea, you know, obviously with the Vec family always looking for a good promotion. So they came up with the anti-disco night when disco was in its, was in its heyday, and they, they set it up to where... Um, you could bring a disco album and I think he got in for a buck or 99 cents or something. But where they underestimated it is that they were thinking about 25,000 and in the, in the ballpark, I think it held 45 or 50. There had to be 55,000 in the ballpark. And they said there were another five or 10,000 outside the park to the, to the point that they had the mounted Chicago police out there trying to control the crowd from trying to, to get in. And, um, you know, I I was, um, I was scheduled to pitch the second game of that, of the double, of the doubleheader that night. And so when I, when I walked out to warm up in the bullpen, it was down to right, down the left field line, right next to the stands. I was walking out with Ron Schuler, pitching coach. And and I looked, I looked up and it, I mean, uh, the reason I was saying 55,000 because you couldn't see the, the aisles anymore people were everywhere people were just like shoulder to shoulder they were they were just letting in as many people as as possible but underestimating what what road it was going down so i got i got down to the bullpen and i was warming up and after maybe five minutes i mentioned to shuler that you know i don't know if this is a good idea because people from the upper deck were throwing shoes and whatever else they had you know empty beer cups full beer cups and then they started frisbeeing the albums. I, for whatever reason, they were they had been allowed to come in with the albums. And it was getting dangerous. So we ended up moving to the main mound. And I, I probably threw 10 pitches there. And then they stormed the field. And we just walked off. And then that was the end of that. Wow. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I
1: was thinking early on, Kenny, when Mark was going through your career, Um you're you're probably the only one on the podcast that played a, played a game in shorts, right? You know, because yeah, the was,
3: yeah, so you
1: guys wore the shorts. because I remember in '79, Knoxville wore them on Sundays in Double A, and I pitched against Knoxville in Knoxville, and uh, the, the they wore the shorts, and it, when it, it and then you mentioned Vec, I remember all the crazy different things
3: that were going on
1: in Chicago that you got to be part of.
3: Yeah. The short thing didn't last long. Cause we had that veteran club and I think it only lasted a game or two. And then they just, I mean, the vets just said we didn't want to wear the shorts anymore.
0: Right. Which right. You Which had the collared shirts too though, right? Yeah. yeah, I
3: had the collared shirts that started in that bicentennial. Yeah. You know, it was supposed to last just at bicentennial, but then, you know, we kept them obviously for several, several years, but you talk about, you know, all of the promotions that are going on. I remember one where I was warming up, you know, like I said, down the left field line and, and, you know, you have the track that goes around the stadium. Well, one night it was belly dancer night. And, and, and I don't know, for whatever reason, they, they, they came in late. Usually it'd be, you know, a promotion to be earlier and they'd be done off the field by the time players would go to warm up. But for some reason, all of a sudden, the big, there's two big steel doors in, in center field open up and here come, here come the belly dancers. And it seemed like there were hundreds of them because they as, they, as they came in, you know, some would go to the left and some would go to the right. And they were, they were on the track. Uh. Well, I'm warming up. And then all of a sudden, you know, the track went in between the mound and the, and the, and the plate. <laughs> and all of a sudden here they come. And, and I thought they would, you know, eventually just kind of walk past me. I'm warming up. I had to stop warming up because they just started walking in between me and the catcher. So far, we had to call timeout and get them, you know, get them to move over and stay oh, on the outside yeah. of the track, and you know, just just some crazy stuff.
1: Yeah, it was it was certainly interesting playing in the '70s and at that time, you know, with Max packing in ballparks and. Uh, the San Diego chicken would pack places and some of the stuff that would go on during games and people getting shot out of cannons at games. Yeah.
2: Yeah, It was crazy. I mean, I had Max packing when I was a player, I was pitching and I, you know, you have to knock him down. Yeah. Uh, And, and, uh, I, all the way through me managing, he was still freaking doing it. Same with the chicken. The chicken was the same because I was with the chicken in San Diego yeah, uh, and yeah. Uh, you know we were friends, and it's funny. I still have a picture of him. He signed it, uh, uh, an autograph picture of the chicken to me. Um, but hey, they, hey they Mark, Mark, cool Mark, Mark, the king in his court.
1: Yeah, Mark on the chicken um, in Nashville one night. You know he would come out with that Rocky act where, you know, where we would beat him up, and then he would come out as Rocky, and they would play the music. Well, I inadvertently threw like a little punch and it went through his beak and hit him. And he literally came out and hit me with a boxing glove down in the bullpen (laughs) in in Nashville. I was the first guy. He knocked me off my chair. I was like, holy crap. (laughs) (laughs) And and he was a good guy. Oh, yeah. You know, afterwards he goes, hey, that's a payback. You. When you punched my beak, it went through and hit me in the face. <laughs> well, you know, when I was pitching coach for Jack McKee
2: in in Florida, we went in to San Diego to play, and they were having a special like uh, thing, and ha- they were having the chicken come out. This was, you know, this was many years after he was a regular there, and but it was a special night, and they were promoting it because the chicken was returning and everything, and so Teddy comes up to me. And he says, Jack hates me. He goes, Can you talk to Jack? Because I really need to do this show right. And he says, Jack can't stand me. Because Jack, when Jack was managing and general manager of the San Diego Padres, when he started, I guess Jack just, he's old school and he just couldn't stand something breaking right. up the game.
1: Yeah. And
2: so, you know, I, I said, You want me to talk to Jack? I said, Okay, I'll talk to him, but it won't make any difference. Just go ahead and do your show and uh i told jack i said hey jack teddy came up to me. he wanted me to smooth things over and he he threw a couple gruff words out and said oh how do whatever the hell he wants <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway you know like i mean there's so many experiences so many things that go down in stories that that we love here and we used to hear the press room even after we finish playing when we go there scouting.
1: Right. That was
2: one of the, the most fun places to go. I don't know if it is now. You you still go to the ballpark, but it used to be great to be with Fergosi and all the guys and 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 kidding each other and making fun of each other and but still really caring about each other. You know, if somebody didn't show up at the ballpark the next day and they were sick in their
3: hotel room, like five guys would call the guy, and say, Where are you?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Uh, well, you know, I think a lot. Of, you know, that has stopped, and it's probably been that way for several years. I mean, yeah. I think the biggest issue is, with that is, you know, not that we were overindulging, but you, you you would always go up to the press room after the game and have a drink or two wait for the crowd to leave. Yeah. It. You yeah. might even get a bite to eat. Some some of the press rooms had pizza or sandwiches up there, and then that's how that all evolved. And be, next thing you know, you're up there for two hours. Yeah, and, but you know that, like you mentioned, Fregosi, uh yeah, Billy Shear, who was on your show the other day, uh, Pete Vukovic. I mean, oh yeah. you know, Vuk with with the stories and the jokes. I mean, it, it, it's amazing to me is how how these guys all remembered so much stuff. I right. mean, it's incredible. You know,
1: yeah, and you know, you walk in and and like I said last week, you know. Certain guys, you go, oh, I'm going to have a good day today. You know, um you see them at the ballpark, you go, you know, you go to the media lunchroom or like you said years ago, gosh, we used to go upstairs in Philly and Harry Callis and Richie Ashburn yeah. would hold court every night Yeah, in Philly. I mean, that was, that was one of the best places. Um, So yeah, the stories would just flow. They were tremendous.
2: Yeah. Kansas city was a good place too.
1: Yeah. 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 It
2: would. Okay. You know, you, you, you said earlier that you grew up being a baseball player, baseball fan, as a young player. Is there anything you would have done different if you look back now? Um, you know, I mean, you know, maybe in your approach or, 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 or where you would have played as a kid or other sports or what, is there anything you would have done different that, uh than you did
3: you know you know not really you, you know as you know everything's changed so much you know what and probably the only thing i would have done different is once i hurt my shoulder i had a neck and shoulder issue i would have been i think more aware to probably try to get it taken care of but you know the game was different then it was it was like you kind of had to pitch through the pain and the discomfort to keep your job and in turn, right. I, you know, really that hurt me. Um, you know, I was lucky to get, uh, you know, three more years in the big leagues, but I was I, – I just wasn't very good. I was probably lucky. Probably, probably because I was left-handed, I was, I was lucky to be in the big leagues. And I I probably would have had more – I probably would've medically would have been more aggressive, you know, trying to figure out what exactly was going on and taking some time off. You know, but, and even back then, you know – I. <laughs> It, it, it's funny now, but I remember the first time I started having a shoulder issue, I went to the orthopedic when I was with the White Sox, you know, they, you know, a doctor would always show up every day and I'd say, you know, I'm starting to have this after I pitch, it's getting sore and sore. And I was like pitch uh, pointing to my tendon above my bicep. And I said, you know, especially when I do this, you know, really. And, and he goes, well, just stop doing that. You know, and it was, and it it was, it was kind of funny at the time, but it wasn't like, Hey, let me take a look at it. Why don't we do this? Let's put you on a little anti-inflammatories or do these exercises, but it wasn't a whole lot of conversation after that point. You know, he says, well, you know, as long as you're still pitching, you know, you should be off or you'll work yourself out where now, you know, a little bit of soreness of tennis, they shut you down. You know, do a little, you know, MRI. If there's inflammation, you know, they shut you down until the inflammation's gone, which all makes sense. You know, maybe sometimes you're overdoing it, but, you know, if I could have been a little bit more cautious, maybe I could have pitched, you know, a few more years in the big leagues.
1: Yeah. There, you know, that's one thing. The game has evolved uh, the health standpoint, the strength and conditioning. Sometimes you do think that it's, it's a little bit of an over cautious overkill sometimes with uh, especially not pushing our pitchers, our young starters. I think they're trying to prevent injuries by limiting innings, but they're not developing starters that should be true starters in the big leagues.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I went through the whole gamut. (laughs) I was abused when I first signed and even pitched some games with two days rest, um, which was started my first problem with my shoulder. Um, you know, uh, you, you if you're not pitching, you're not accomplishing anything. Was kind of what the philosophy was then. Right. And the big thing was, everybody would tell you back in those days, don't get in, don't be a guy that's in the in the trainer's don't go room. To the training room. You know, right. Don't be seen in the trainer's room. Well, you know. I think for me, um, they take such care of the players now, and you made a uh, you made a, us aware that sometimes they go overboard. Will on on stuff, and I used to get really frustrated. I'd have a young pitcher that I felt like, well, you know, he had a groin pull. He, you know, I had a groin pull. I had a groin pull twice. It was about one of the only injuries I had. And it took me 10 days and it went away. It went away and I never worried about it again. I'd had pitchers go two, three months without pitching because they had a growing pool. Yeah. And and in today's world, I'm going, are you kidding me? This guy's never going to get better. You won't allow, it wasn't the kid didn't want to go out there, they wouldn't let him. So there has to be sanity, there has to be balance. Uh, I think it is good. I mean we know every inning that a pitcher throws as a kid growing up now when he signs we know how much wear and tear he's had back then they had no idea they didn't know you showed up they acted like you were a brand new present to open that we hadn't had any backstory so you know i think some of the things they do now and they track are really good um and i think some of some of the analytics uh, uh can show that an injury is on its way. Some of the medical uh technology can show you that, you know, you can prevent an injury that's maybe starting to to show its face. But um there's also being too cautious because you <laughs> you can't accomplish great things. And I think this game is getting to where it's harder and harder
3: for a pitcher to accomplish any great thing because they're so limited.
1: Right. Yeah,
3: right. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's kind of gone from one extreme to the other. I mean, yeah, I,
1: exactly. I can
3: remember, I mean, you talk about not being aware of, you know, you know, back when we came at back coming from, you know, how much is this guy pitched or, you know, what's his history? Like when I was in high school and uh, if I, 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 I would pitch a game, but it could be next, the next day or, the, or two days later, I'd come in relief. And they'd put, they'd put me, normally, if I had some time off, I'd play center field to make the throw. But if it was, if say we had a game the next day, they'd put me at first base. But I might, if the if the pitcher got in trouble late in the game and we were winning, they would flip-flop us. They'd put him at first. I'd go in and get out of the inning. And then the very next inning, I would go back to first and he would pick. But if he got in trouble again, two innings later, I'd go back out there and, and pitch and get out of the inning. And then... I mean, think of, think about that. (laughs) Right. No. I mean, it was uh, another example is, is uh, when I was playing amateur ball in in Cleveland and a lot of uh, um, ex minor league players were playing in this league. It didn't have an age limit. It was a Connie Mack league. And Buddy Schultz was, uh, he was, he was in the league and we played on the two best teams and we would pitch against each other. Well, When he was in high school, he went to Shaw, Cleveland Shaw in high school, and they went to the state finals, and he was a hard-throwing lefty. Well, he ended up – they had to win the first game to play the second. He pitched the first game and won and pitched the second game and won. He wasn't quite the same after that. He, He ended up getting drafted by the Cardinals, I believe, and got to the big leagues. But, you know, I mean, think about that. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, well, they
2: yeah, they just didn't have the knowledge either, you know, that they do now. But,
3: well, you, you know, know the way you were as a competitor. You know, if the coach came up to you and said, hey, how do you feel? Oh, I feel great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I had two twice
2: where I pitched in both games of a doubleheader. I, I, one time I started one, and the, the coach said, listen, it was a big series. And uh, he says – You'll start the game, and for some fluke, we get a big lead. I'm going to put you in right field, and then you'll start the second game. Well, I pitched the first inning or so, and then uh, we got a big lead, so I played right field, running in and out, uh, had a couple throws out there. Then I started the second game, and I'll never forget the last out of the second game, complete game, was a ground ball to Wendell Kim. We all know who yeah, Wendell yeah, was. Yeah, Wendell was my third baseman. And there was men at first and second. No, I, it was bases loaded and two outs, one run lead. Guy hit a ground ball window, caught it, and tagged third base. And I'll tell you, I almost collapsed on the field. I had I saw stars. I saw stars. It was, like, really hot and humid in San Fernando Valley. And uh, I'll never forget that. I, I almost passed out. I'm going, how could, how could I do that, you know, <laughs> years later? Um, but, you know, you did stuff that your coaches asked you to do. And in a lot of cases, they didn't know any better at the time.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, like when I signed, we we still had a four-man rotation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah me too.
2: I, I, me too. I, yeah. I had that
1: in A-Ball, and that's the best year I ever had. <laughs> I honestly – I got into such a good rhythm early in the year, and it just carried through the whole season. I loved it. Um,
3: but uh, – We – yeah. When I when I signed in 73, I kind of fought to go to double-A. I don't know. And the reason it was, they wanted to send me to Appleton. And and um, I didn't know where Appleton was, never heard of it. And Knoxville is a double-A club. So in my mind, okay, I know where Knoxville is. I'd rather go there. So eventually, they let me go to Knoxville. Well, they, What happened is the first three picks, it was Swisher, Jim Otten, and myself, the first three picks in the draft, they send the – to Knoxville. And when we got there, they were in first place and we didn't get there till like July. Randy Bob was the catcher. He had some big league time with the Mets. You know, he'd caught Seaver and Kuzman, those guys. I think he, you know, more of an up and down guy, but spent some time there and he was the catcher there. So they had some experience. Well, because we were high kicks and, you know, that, you know, back in, the, back in the day, bonus babies. <laughs> um they put Otten and myself in the rotation, four-man rotation, and Swisher became the everyday catcher. Well, Swisher proceeds to hit about a buck fifty or something. Otten and I start off zero and eight, <laughs> and and we obviously go from first place to probably fourth place. And you know, being a veteran club, they you know as you know the the way we were kind of treated at times then. Right they weren't happy with us, you know, oh, because yeah. no, i not, you know, not only did some of their friends get released or, or moved down or, you know, stuck in the bullpen. And then we were out there going 0-8. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, was,
2: that wasn't too good for the chemistry of that no, club. No, no. Wow. You know, uh, you know, what, you know, when you're looking out there and you do, you do, you've done, you know, scouting for trades probably more often in recent years. Um, You know, what do you look for when you you want to acquire a pitcher? You know, I know
3: makeup's a big thing. Is there anything else? Well, I I think the things that jump out for me initially are are command of his fastball. And you got to have at least one second pitch that you can get a hitter out with and you can throw any time. And what I see a lot of now is, um, you know, big arms were not a good feel for a secondary pitch. And I know you can transition some of these guys to the bullpen, but still, I mean, it, I don't care if you're throwing 100. If, if, if they can spit on your breaking ball, you can't throw for a strike or it's not going to keep a hitter off balance or trick them off your fastball, then then it's just, for me, it's just not going to work. I mean, you might be a, an organizational player. But um, but fastball command and having a secondary pitch that you can pitch off you know something that you can get them off your fastball with a little bit. And that, those are the two big things. And that you know obviously then transitions or backs up into being able to repeat you know being able to repeat your slot, whatever it is. And I and it doesn't have to be. It's just like hitting for me. My my opinion. I mean, you can have the longest swing in the world and. But if you can get that bad head to the ball, that's all. That's all I care about. Can you square it up? You know, and can you adjust your hands at times to pull them in and get the bad head to the ball? And the same with the pitchers. You know, I, I don't care. I mean, how many how many for me? And like I said again, this is my opinion. How many meetings have I sat in, and and a, and another person in the room might say, well, I don't like this guy because he's a hooker or a stabber or a rapper or he drops his elbow something. And if he gets in the right position, he could be a hooker or a rapper, but he gets that arm in the right position and he can get, get into that position most of the time and repeat. I'm good with it. And, and they say, well, you know, this guy's going to probably get hurt. What well, if, if you can, I don't know. If you can tell me that this guy's delivery is going to hurt him and I'm not going to, you know, might happen once in a hundred, once in a thousand if you can tell me this guy's going to get injured, then you're going to make a million dollars in this game because you may as well just be a subcontract and work for everybody. Because I haven't seen it yet. No. And 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 my examples are, I was kind of force fed into it when when I got back in the game with Kansas City, and was initially the pitching coach. Well, we had we had Mark Gubaza and Kevin Apier.
1: Right. Right. And you
3: know two guys that. Every, you know, we'd have guys in the room going, man, I mean, you know, we should probably trade these guys. They're going to break down. Well, they had, you know, I think Apier eventually broke down in his 10th year or 12th year or something. I know, I it really was, hey,
1: hey, Kenny, I have a report on Apier from the 89 instructional league over at boardwalk and baseball, you know, loved his competitiveness, his stuff. I said, this guy just is not going to last. This delivery's a train wreck. Well, I was right. Like, 15 years later, <laughs> when, he finally, when he finally went on the DL for the first time. I mean.
2: Yeah, that's unbelievable. I had him. I had him after, and I had heard all those things. I had him years later in, in his career. Just, we traded him that year during the season to the Oakland A's. But um, I really liked him because he was one of those guys that he, him and Dennis Martinez were the best guys I ever had with bases loaded, no outs. Given up the least amount of damage, they were unbelievable. They they just they just could make pitches when they were in the toughest spots, and you know the 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 comment you made earlier as you talk about you you know you could never tell if somebody's getting it hurt or or you mentioned about a secondary pitch like. I'm a big believer in that, too, that you've got to have a secondary pitch you can throw for strikes. I mean, come on. Yeah. You can have the greatest arm in baseball, but if you can't do that, you're, you're you're behind the eight ball. And you know how many times I heard Mark can fix a guy when I was a major league pitcher for 17 years? They'd acquire a guy who would pitch for eight years, and they're telling me that I can get him a breaking ball or yeah.
1: something. Right. You know, like
2: like, oh... I could manufacture something that all these other freaking Hall of Fame coaches could never freaking do. And uh, the only time I was able to help a guy when you acquired him was guys that had been really good. And I found something they were doing or a flaw in their delivery that was very subtle. Right. It was getting them out of rhythm. And if I could correct that, they'd go right back to being really good again. But if they weren't. I always told the players they get frustrated, you oh, know, I'm doing horse shit, Mark. I don't know what I'm doing. I go, listen, are you hurt? And they go, No, I feel great. I said, Well we'll 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 get you back to where you're supposed to be. I always wanted to give them the confidence if you're not hurt, right, you could always get back to where you were. Right,
3: they they have a history of showing you showing your good stuff, but yes, if yeah, not being hurt, then we can tweak it here or there. Yeah, it's
2: uh but you're right. You know, there's too many people get enamored with with uh, some of the analytic stuff that doesn't tell you the yeah, VI can throw it for a strike.
3: Well, you know? <laughs> and hitters, hitters, I mean, good hitters. You get to the big big leagues, they don't care if you're throwing a hundred. No, no. But you got to, you get, like I said, you got to get them off that fastball somehow. No. Doc Edwards used to say. A major league hitter can time a bullet
2: if he sees enough of them. Yeah, yeah
1: that's, a, uh, that's the old Charlie Manuel line. I, uh, I can hit a bullet out of a gun if I get my hands back and my foot down. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, it's uh
1: Well, crazy, well you know, another man. guy,
3: I mean, maybe changing the subject a little bit, but uh, making me think of when I was with Kansas City is, well, my very first year that I got I was back in the game in 86, and I was in the rookie league here in Sarasota. and. Uh, Brian McCrae was the number one pick that year. And um Tommy Gordon was like the seventh, eighth, or ninth round pick. And you know, I don't really have any experience on that side of the game anymore. And so they had drafted quite a few high school kids and they ended up most of them coming to Sarasota, where I was. So Gordon shows up, you know, he's got a he's got a raw eighty fastball, which is, you know, the best, and he's got a raw eighty curveball, which is the best. And, you know, you're talking about from nose to toes. And he's and he, and after only a couple of days, you can tell he's strong. He's a tremendous athlete. Yeah. And so uh, we get some of our free agent scouts come in. And I ask them, I go, how does this guy go in the seventh, eighth, or ninth round? And they all say because of his height, which I get, you know, because I know. Back when I was playing, Philadelphia would never draft a shorter right hander. When I say a shorter right hander, I'm talking about six foot six one. They always like those six three, six yeah. four, six five. Uh, I right believe the,
1: the Yankees as well. Yeah,
3: but uh, but Gordon's stuff was so good, electric, that electric. it was amazing to me that they still so many teams passed on him. And you and you talk about a guy taking a fast track to the big leagues and pitching twenty years or whatever he did, right. I mean, he was a special, special kid. Yeah, his stuff was electric. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah,
1: I, yeah. Well, guys, we've
0: been here for almost 55, almost an hour. We kept you, Ken, today. Do you guys have any last questions for him? We appreciate all your time.
3: No, yeah. it's, all, it's all good. You know, you know one one thing, do we have a couple minutes or a minute? Yeah, to, yeah, no, that's sure, sure. we You know, one thing I wanted to mention, you know, about um, what I see now and, there's, to me, there's so much over coaching, and there's so much. And when I say over coaching, and, and then I see coaching where, um, where you have a hitting instructor trying to make each hitter hit the exact same way. Right. I, mean, I can watch high school games, local high school games, and I can watch these hitters, and I can tell you if I can, I can see some hitters, and I can tell you who their hitting coach is, right. yeah, because they all have the exact same approach. You know, instead of working off of what the the kid is trying to give you and tweaking off of that. I'm not saying you can't make adjustments, but trying to mold everybody into the same look. Right. But, but the other thing is like, you know, that pigeonholing kids into that. And then, you know, and and pigeonhole kids into like one sport, not letting letting them play multiple sports and getting some cross training. Um, You know, it's kind of an overview, you know, and a lot of pressure on from the parents and, you know, you know, I look back. I, you know, and it, obviously it was a, a lot different, but we taught ourselves how to play the game. Right. right. I mean, we we played baseball in the summer all day, every day because we loved it. We were across the street in the field. We'd play. We'd figure out two man game, games, three man games, four man games where you, you had to pull the ball and you had to hit the hit the ball past the pitcher on a fly. Or well, we'd set up games coming out of our garage. You'd get a wiffle ball and with electrical tape. But we did that every day, and and we the re, re, repeating that every day is kind of how we taught ourselves to play the game. You know, and, Kenny,
1: I was like the I always say the best advice I ever got was Ray Miller telling me as a young pitcher that signed out of high school that I was going to be my own best pitching coach once I understood my body and was able to make adjustments and. Learn, And that's something that I always told kids because you want them to take control, figure things out. So they now have a feel for pitching, not just right. become mechanical robots and cookie cut approach, you know, right. develop, you know, develop your own style. It, it's, it's like now, now the big thing in baseball is just go up and down, you know, with with four-seam fastballs at the top, top of the strike zone and try to strike everybody out. Well, you know, you got to go down to be, to be effective up, Yeah, you know, and it's like, you know, stop trying to cookie cut and turn everybody into the same thing. I always loved seeing, having a team that had different looks in the bullpen, a sidearm left-hander, a sidearm right-hander, a submarine guy, overhand power guy, a low three-quarter guy, you know, you have all these different looks. Right, That becomes tougher on hitters.
3: Yeah. You know, and you're talking about feel, I mean, you want to get to the point that as soon as that ball leaves your hand, you know, you know. If it's good or not, or where it's going. Yeah, that's what exactly. that's what you got to get to.
1: Exactly.
3: Well, you know, you just
2: you learn you learn a lot along the way by reps that are bad.
1: Yeah. Right. You know? Right. Yeah.
2: We'll 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 finish. I'll finish with this quote from Will uh, Will Rogers. He says, "Good judgment comes from experience. A lot of that comes from bad judgment." Yeah, exactly. You know, the, these are the things that uh, that they're told everything to do now, so they never get to the point where they learn good judgment from bad judgment.
0: Yeah, are you seeing that, Kenny, with your uh, with your scouting? These are uh, athletes, baseball players. Obviously, we're talking about more fragile, uh, afraid to make mistakes, afraid to experiment, like you guys are talking about.
3: Well, you know, I I don't know if they're afraid to make mistakes because. Um, I, th- I think, I think a lot of them can probably pass the buck and say, Hey, this is, I'm trying to do what you want me to do you know, <laughs> oh, this. And then I, I'm not having success. And I, but I've seen some kids and I, and I've talked to some coaches where they're uh, even at the rookie league level where they're not having success the way that coaches are trying to force you into a certain style where they've gone back, say, I can't hit that way. I'm not comfortable. So right away, mentally, that's going to work on you. I think what you need to do with the younger, younger players is that let them, I don't care if they stand in their head, let them hit the way they want to hit. And, and when, they fail, when they fail for a while, they'll come to you and say, hey, man, you got to help me. Well, that's, that's, that was one of my philosophies when I was with the Rockies.
2: When We had kids come out of high school. I said, we just let them play. They got they get signed for a reason the scout saw something now as use it more for evaluation and if there's an issue you think a guy's going to really hurt himself bring it up and we'll all discuss it yeah I that's perfect
0: yeah. uh, I think it's great great advice we got today uh Ken thanks so much for coming on and mark and will great job with the show today yeah. uh, Ken I, we didn't tell you before but I don't know if it would have we didn't want to uh, make you too self-aware with it, but we're on in 46 countries and we're being listened to from the grassroots level all the way to major league front offices. So we appreciate no. you helping our audience give a better baseball IQ. I okay. want to thank you. Yeah, okay. no, you did great. and uh,
3: now how, how soon before I received that luggage from being on this show?
0: Oh, it's already in the mail. It's already in the mail.
3: Well, there was a Rolex, but we'll send you the luggage instead.
0: Yeah, and and yeah. A, a day at the yard. Common sense pitching with a Wiley and Will T-shirt. We kind of wrote, wrote it around the backbone. Tell you everybody wants us. Those are collectors. Don't let me see it on eBay though, because those are going for mint money right now.
3: I hope they. Sorry. I hope they signed it first.
0: Oh, of course they do. Of course they we, do.
1: And, and of course, we misspelled your name. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, three different times.
3: Oh, wow, I put a C on that thing. That's hey, that's six,
0: that's, six letters, they spelled it three different ways for me. I know. So, that, I,
3: that's I, okay, because most of my life I've been Ken Kravick anyway. So I get it. Hey, <laughs> okay,
0: with a last name like Dagostino, I'm sensitive to that. You can imagine how many misspellings you get in that. But we, we want to thank you and then thank our audience too 12,000 faithful, faithful subscribers now. We went over the hump today. Um, you did make mention to Jim Cottmark. He had his first show with me last Friday. A uh, big, big, big uh, response from our audience. So he'll be on again tomorrow with me. And then um, 12,000 subscribers. Continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher. You can hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. I've been doing a message of the day thanks to, gosh, 50 to 60 DMs. Uh, I try to pick one out a day, but I'll respond to everybody. And uh, we appreciate all the support, and we'll continue to bring great guests, continue to build build better baseball IQs. And Mark and Will, great job today. And, Ken, thanks so much for giving us your time today. We we appreciate our audience. Thanks, Kenny.
1: Yep. Thank you, Ken.